Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood uh, tour guide sharing with you some of the more scandalous and interesting moments in history. Welcome back from our summer break. Uh, and by summer break, really just a break for us to lead tours uh, during the crazy tourist season. But we're really happy to be back. Uh, as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the oh, Rebecca's. We hadn't done that in a while. Um, hi, everybody. We're really happy to have you here. First and foremost, before we jump into some logistics, thank you to everybody who's out there supporting the pod. We've had just a lot of love on social media. We really appreciate everybody shouting us out uh, and sharing their favorite episodes. And thank you to all the listeners who've been booking tours with us. We are just really happy to meet supporters in person and you guys supporting a local tour company. That's just awesome. So we want to just open with a big thank you. You guys are amazing and uh, we love you. We do. It's, I've had people reach out to me and want to book tours because of the pod, and it's just been the best and the coolest to like meet actual fans, and it's really cool. Um, and so we wanted to thank you guys very much. Thank all of our great listeners and our supporters. And a special shout out to all of our patrons who continue to keep the lights on and who have stuck with us through two plus challenging years of the pod and uh, hopefully are continuing to get their patron benefits. If you're not, let us know. But there should be an extra bonus episode for all our patron uh, listeners. Uh, And we are back for August and the fall, and it's going to be great. We have a bunch of great ideas uh, for the fall schedule. If you have something that you want to hear about, we want to hear that. Uh, And so let us know what your uh, desires, if there's something that you really would like to get the tour guide tell-all treatment, we would love to do and add that into our schedule. Um, And we are out and about in D.C. on tours uh, we have a uh, full summer schedule, gang. We're giving tours like every day, and it's a ton of fun, and it's hot, but we know all the shady spots and all the shady spots in D.C. <laughs> um, and a glimpse, in a special glimpse into the making of the pod. Summer's the busiest time. Spring is actually the busiest time for us. So March to June is the worst. It's busy all the time. And so knowing that, Becca and I actually spent the winter time taping a bunch of episodes in, in advance. And so while you have been hearing our voices regularly, and while we have been seeing each other in person on the job regularly, this is actually the first pod we've recorded in a little bit. So it's been a hot minute and we're very excited. So fall is coming. It's going to be great. And that's where we are. That is where we are. And uh, I think we have a really fun topic, just fun is maybe not the word, a really interesting topic to dig into to kind of kick this off because uh, we have focused a lot on the pod in 19th century history. And while we've done 20th century, we haven't always, I think, really talked about sort of these big kind of shifting moments that sort of change and give us the world as many of us who were born at the end of the 20th century sort of know it. Um, those of us born in the 1900s, as it were. <laughs> the olds. The olds. Um, so I'm really excited to do this. And there is a little bit of a, a sort of DC connection that we'll sort of touch on throughout. But I'll let Rebecca sort of get us started because I am, and as you, you listen to the pod, you know this, very much an Americanist. And so that's the perspective I will bring to our topic today. Um, but we're going a little bit more international, which I always feel like is your bailiwick. I feel like this might actually be the furthest we've been geographically from Washington. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think, we were in Hawaii for Pearl Harbor, 
But this is, we're going to talk about the Yalta Conference, y'all. So I've been obsessed um, recently with a lot of contem- more contemporary stuff. And so this is going to be the start of a, a, a few of those contemporary episodes. Um, but the Yalta Conference, if you're not familiar, is in takes place in February of 1945, um, February 4th to 11th, to be specific. And it is the second of three meetings of what's known as the Big Three, the leaders of the Allied powers, uh, in, at the end, towards the end of the Second World War. And so we're going to talk about that, about why it's important. Um, if you've studied World War II history or really 20th century American history at all, you have probably at least heard of it. Um, but to start off, Yalta is in the Ukraine today, the Crimea. What that point was part of the Soviet Union and it is on the water. It is very lovely. It's a very lovely little seaside area. It's got apparently good weather, particularly in February, which is not something you can say for a lot of the former Soviet Union. Uh, and it is going to be in um, the meeting between Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin and their aides and supporters and admirals and things like that. Uh, they are going to meet to decide the post-war world. So basically- and I'm going to let me jump in here for a moment because when we're talking about this meeting in 1945, this is really coming off of essentially about a year's worth of meetings and conversations that have been happening among the diplomatic community. By 1944, there's a really strong sense that at some point the allies will win this out. Now, how that might happen is yet to be determined. And what the world's going to look like after is certainly still a question, but there are conversations that are happening. And some of those conversations actually take place in Washington, D.C. and Georgetown at Dumb Barton Oaks, which if you haven't been, is a really incredible historic house museum and estate. And so these conversations at Dumbarton Oaks are going to help basically lead us to what becomes the establishment of the United Nations. But as they're having these conversations, one of the biggest sort of question marks in a lot of this is Stalin and the Soviet Union and where they're going to fit into this. And so it really sort of comes into play at the Dumbarton Oaks conversations that they're going to need to really, at the top, top level, get a sense of how this is going to play out. So I just wanted to sort of put Yalta into sort of a continuum of conversations that are happening among the big three, but also many, many diplomats, many, many um, political figures that had been already sort of assuming we're going to win this thing and we have to have a plan for what happens next. Absolutely. There is an awful lot of background that's going to be important before we even get to the conference. Um, And the location itself, as we'll kind of get to later, is chosen partly to highlight who is the most preeminent of the three, uh, big three. Um, So the three key players, Winston Churchill, who we've talked about, uh, he's been prime minister of the uh, United Kingdom for close to five years. He is close to Franklin Roosevelt. They've met several times, but he is deeply suspicious and mistrustful of Joseph Stalin. They do not get along. He does not like communism. (laughs) He has only reluctantly sided with him because the Nazis were worse. It's basically how to drill down on that. Um, He has met with Stalin a couple of times in the past. The three of them, the first big three conference was in Tehran, Iran, uh, in uh, November of 1943. Uh, Churchill flies to Moscow to meet with Stalin in October of 1944, uh, but Franklin Roosevelt is tied up with an upcoming election and so does not attend. 
Um, Joseph Stalin has been in charge of the USSR for about 25 years, and he will lead the USSR for eight more after this. He is deeply mistrustful of both the Americans and the British, and like deeply. And really kind of everybody. And everybody Stalin yes. is suspicious of all of everyone. Uh, and paranoid and probably not a little wrong to be. No, no. I literally have it in our notes. He's deeply mistrustful of the Americans and the British and really everyone else. <laughs> he is not wrong to be wholly suspicious of both FDR and Churchill. He, the reason, the first conference with the big three a year and a half prior, he had been begging it's the, for a second front. The Soviet Union is taking the bulk of the German onslaught in the uh, what's known as the Eastern Front for us. Uh, and Soviets are dying at an incredible rate. And he needs a second front opened by the Anglo-American alliance that will draw off enough German divisions to give him a little relief. The Americans are in North Africa in, the, in 1942. They're up the boot of Italy, but it's not enough. They're not drawing off enough German firepower. And so he in, has spent two years essentially begging, begging uh, Churchill and Roosevelt. And particularly Churchill has really dragged their feet before establishing the second front. And the second front we know is now is D-Day. They're gonna open up D-Day in June of 1944. And by that time, the Soviets are in the advance in the East. And so it's not as necessary. And so this is kind of where we are. He has been invaded. The lots of Soviets have uh, died in the pursuit of this war. And there's a very real feeling from Stalin that the Americans and the British are very content to let his army do the fighting where they're going to supply the army. And the Americans do supply the whole war. But he's very deeply suspicious of both Roosevelt and especially Churchill. And I think not without cause, right? As Stalin recognizes that as soon as the Nazis are out of the question, he becomes someone, he and the Soviet Union more broadly are going to become problems for the other allies. And that with a weaker leader at the helm, this would be a chance to be railroaded. And honestly, out of some of these earlier conversations, there's a lot of discussion of how they can railroad the Soviet Union, right? And so um, not to be um, not to be one side or the other on Stalin, but I understand his suspicions and he's certainly not wrong to go into this very much aware that he could absolutely get screwed over. Yes, I deeply understand his suspicions. There's also a language barrier. Like, obviously, Churchill and FDR have a common language. They've met several times. They have a they, relationship. I mean, they're buds. They're bros. They, like, they like dig each other in a big way. And, like, there's the sense that Stalin is, like, the third wheel. Well, and let's talk like, about just really quick. I mean, Churchill and FDR come from similar backgrounds. These are men who come from, you know, money. Mm -hmm. They come from the elite, right? The mm -hmm. echelons. They're well-educated. That is not Stalin's background. No. Stalin comes from nothing. And he's also not a politician. Like Churchill and Roosevelt, whatever else they are or not, they were both consummate political operatives. Stalin's not. He's a dictator. He never elected. He wasn't elected anything. And so he's not, doesn't have the charm and the sort of um, political savvy that the other two have. He feels like he's kind of like the third wheel on a date between two people who really dig each other. You know, like that's kind of where he's at. And so he feels used and abused. He feels left out in the cold. He's very worried about another invasion. He sees, as everyone sees, the Americans are on the ascendancy. 
and he is the war is ending and he is worried that he wants to be in control in Eastern Europe to prevent another invasion uh, and become more important. And so this is sort of where he's at. At this point, the Soviet Union, there are few fighting forces in the history of the world that are the, the equal of the Red Army at this moment. They are an absolutely fearsome fighting force. And so he's got control of Eastern Europe and this puts him in control. He's gone from beggar to chief. And this is why the, the conference is on his turf because first of all, he doesn't like to fly. So he's gonna make them come to him. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of where Stalin is. Roosevelt has just begun his fourth term, unprecedented fourth term as president of the United States. Just So the conference starts on uh, February 4th. He is sworn in obviously January 20th. That's how we do things around here. Uh, and so literally just like two weeks before the conference starts, he starts his unprecedented fourth term. It is also important to mention how ill he is. When he does phys his, gets a physical and stuff and sort of makes this all very public for his reelection campaign the previous November, his doctors are going to basically sit him down and be like, you need to back off some of this stuff. You have hypertension and he's got an enlarged heart and a whole bunch of things. And you're not looking great. And Roosevelt, because he's Roosevelt, because he's endlessly optimistic, is basically going to be in severe denial about this. Partly because I feel like, you know, no one wants to confront their own mortality. That's a very human thing. It's also a very Rooseveltian thing to be endlessly, like, optimistic and upbeat. And everyone can kind of see how ill he is. You can, we'll put pictures in the show notes. It is very obvious from the pictures how ill he was. Yeah, when you look at Roosevelt in 44 and compare it even to 41, 42, there's a real decline that becomes very evident. And the entire campaign... It, this does come up. It's not like his opponent, uh, Thomas Dewey, is going to not mention that, you know, FDR is looking pretty. It comes up in the campaign, but Roosevelt counteracts it with this really rigorous campaign schedule. He does a lot of public events, does a lot of campaigning. So he's really run himself ragged through the fall. So going into this February, he's sort of like really worn himself out. But the whole mentality is finish the fight. This is literally what he's using in his campaign material is this image of Uncle Sam that's like, stay in till we win. And so there is also this mentality of even if he were to really accept the reality of his health, the nation, the world, right, comes first. And so the only way we're going to win this is by not changing horses midstream. And it also, Roosevelt is, um, he, he doesn't want to change horses. He's going to be very public in his re-election campaign, which exhausts him further. And the other factor to mention here is he has not done a very good job of taking the people around him into his confidence. He wants to, and Roosevelt, we talked about this in our Pearl Harbor episode, Roosevelt really understands, I think before a lot of other Americans, how important this moment is for this country, that this is the defining moment of our, of the 20th century. And he wants to lead us through it by himself. And so he's not really great at asking for help, at taking his subordinates into his confidence. He has a brand new vice president who he meets twice, who's a capable and competent man, 
but also he's not entrusting anyone around him with his plans for the post-war world. He's going to rely, Roosevelt relies so much on his personality, on his ability to charm Stalin, who's famously a man who is charmed by nothing. And so he, it's a lot of like personal touch and that's just, yeah, not great. We touch on this slightly in our Harry Truman episode, which if you haven't listened to the Truman episode, I definitely recommend. But FDR has many strengths, but mentorship isn't one of them. He's not cultivating a bench behind him. He's not, you know, like, as you said, sort of taking people into the inner circle, but he's also not even hand selected a successor, which many political figures do, right? You cultivate someone that you are going to have carry on the mantle. I mean, goodness, even Teddy at the time thought Taft could do it, but FTR is really not. And so Truman, uh, there's a recognition that FTR's health is a real deal problem. And that's how Truman gets onto the ticket um, to be sort of this fourth vice president. But as FDR is leading up to this Yalta conference, his VP is a non-factor. There's no sense. Oh, and there's no one else. There's no one else, an aide or anyone that he really trusts enough to sort of say, if anything happens to me, this is, this is where we're going. And so he's going into this thinking that he's going to live long enough to see through the post-war world and that's yeah and it's also like i mean not I to spoil like, things too much but fdr is not gonna live much longer not gonna live much longer i feel that fdr does not get enough we don't take him to task enough for this in a real way like he kind of gets a pass he does not prepare the country and it, part of the reason he gets a pass is because truman steps into the breach and does such a bang-up job of it and i'm a big true becca is a big true my birthday um, bud Birthday, birthday. I'm a big Truman fan. I feel like he's such an underrated president. Like stepping into the breach here is an incredible moment for Truman. And we're going to have to talk about the 1944 election at a later time because it's really deeply fascinating. But FDR doesn't get taken a task enough about this. He sort of leaves this up to, oh, I'll be fine. I'll live through it. And, you know, we'll charm Stalin and we'll be able to figure it out. And I just... That's just not a great strategy on a number of levels, <laughs> particularly given his health concerns. So that's where we are in terms of the big three. The war in the Pacific, the advancing on Japan continues apace. Uh, the Battle of Iwo Jima starts right after the conference ends and lasts for about a month. So that's kind of where they are. The Iwo Jima is the fierce, one of the fiercest battles in the Pacific. Um, it is uh, the nuclear test also has not worked yet. So the um, Franklin Roosevelt knows, and no one else does, that we are trying to split the atom and ba basically make a nuclear bomb. At this point, February, it has not worked. And so the United States is facing down an invasion of the Japanese mainlands, which is an incredibly large undertaking and sort of looms over everything Roosevelt's trying to do with this. He, the um, he knows that this invasion is going to take a long time. The Japanese have shown no signs of being willing to negotiate, let alone unconditionally surrender. Uh, and so that is, he's anticipating his casualty numbers are anywhere from three quarters of a million to a million Americans uh, invading the home islands. So that's sort of where uh, Roosevelt's mindset is. And that's important to, to understand. There's not a successful test until July. So he doesn't live to see this. In Europe... Germany has been beaten. They just haven't admitted it yet, basically. It is clear to everyone at the table that the war is going to end. 
it is going to end fairly soon and the Germans are going to lose. Um, the Battle of the Bulge has just ended in the Western Front. Uh, Hitler threw his last reserves at the Americans and got defeated. The Americans and the Anglo-Americans are on the far western border of Germany at this point, so they're on German territory. In the east, the Soviets have been in full advance for more than a year. So they are, at this point, they liberate Auschwitz about a week before the conference begins at the end of January. So the whole, the full horrors of the Holocaust are unfolding as this conference is happening. And at this point, the Soviets are on the far eastern end of Germany. So Germany is being encircled. The war is coming to an end. Uh, at this point, they're about 40 miles from Berlin, because that's on the far eastern side of Germany. And that's so that's where the war is. That's what's happening. So this is not about the war. No, this is, this is about what happens next, because there's no doubt, right, that we're going to take Germany, Germany's going to fall. But I, I appreciate, too, that you sort of mentioned the liberation of Auschwitz, because I do wonder if they hadn't gotten there yet, where that might have put this, because it's becoming very clear that the crimes that have been committed are vast. And that this is going to have a big influence, I think, in the mentality that the big three are taking towards where does Germany fit into our world after this? Right. And how can we, we have, one of the things they talk about is post-war justice. So that's one of the things that the big three are going to talk about at this conference is how we basically can make this happen. Um, what their aims are, Roosevelt very simply wants two ba- main things. First of all, he wants the Soviets to participate in the new United Nations that they're creating, knowing that if they do not, that it will have no legitimacy and no teeth. The other thing he wants is Soviet help, a promise of Soviet help in the Pacific. The bomb is in progress, but like I said, there's no assurance yet. And so anticipating a mainland Japanese invasion, he doesn't really particularly love the idea of the Soviets getting a toehold in the Pacific, but he also doesn't love the idea of a million American casualties more. And so he wants help. And Stalin, that's one of the things that Stalin's going to dig in about. So that's one of the, their big sticking points. Churchill wants free elections in Eastern Europe, especially Poland. Stalin does not actually want free elections in Eastern Europe. At absolutely all. not. No, absolutely not. He wants a Soviet sphere of influence, which he's going to come right out and say that he's been invaded. They've been invaded twice in living memory, uh, particularly this last time was a little rough, and they want a buffer. Um, he And he feels that his position is strong enough, so he's going to get to dictate terms. So this is basically not really about what we it's basically what the the anglo-american alliance can get the russians to do and agree to so that's basically what they're meeting for they're actually even though it is in yalta it's on stalin's turf literally actually all the sessions are at roosevelt's palace they all meet in different palaces because this is where the czar and his buds used to like hang out and take in the sea air and so he stalin is going to defer to roosevelt actually to play host uh so all these plenary sessions take place at the Livadia Palace, uh, Palace, which is where the czars used to hang out. Good times. <laughs> the results are they all agree, and this is not a hard lift, they want no. an unconditional surrender for Germany. No, they do not get a say. This is going to be Germany wants total capitulation. Um, Germany will have to undergo denazification and a demilitarization. They also um, want 
and this takes some doing, but FDR and Churchill want a, FDR more than Churchill, wants a trial for Nazi war criminals. Stalin prefers to just take them out and execute them. Which uh, I can get. <laughs> That's kind of his MO. He's done that with people who've done far less things. And frankly, if you had like trotted out some of, you know, what, what these people had done and put it out to the American public, plenty of people probably would have said works for us, right? These are horrible, horrible crimes that have been committed against humanity. This is um, also though setting a stage. And I think uh, FDR recognizes this even more than Churchill that this sort of thing has happened in human history and will happen again. And how we handle it as a global community is going to set a precedence for the future. And FDR recognizes that as much as it would be easy to probably even sell to the American public the idea of mass executions of criminals, that we have to have a trial. We have to have some semblance of a legal system to to handle this because these sorts of things will inevitably happen again and his ability to sort of work this i think is is worth noting right it's really fdr wants due process in some way whatever limited capacity there needs to be some sort of legal process and framework set up here um, to deal with this that we can't just execute our enemies because eventually things change and there will be different enemies. And that's not a great precedent. There should be some sort of trial here. There should be as impartial a judge as you can. And what they end up happening, and there's plenty of flaws with the Nuremberg trials. It's a lot, the big um, sort of stain on the Nuremberg is that it's considered victor's justice, which it really kind of, you can make the case that it is, but it's also a legal framework for establishing these things as crimes that the international community needs to and indeed has to deal with together and that we have to come together as allies and really assess these individual criminals, their individual crimes, and mete out justice in as meaningful a way as we can. And so FDR is really going to push for this. Um, Stalin eventually is going to give in, but he wants the there to be a, a judge from each of the major nations. So there's a French judge and an American. So he wants there to be a Soviet presence um, uh, at these Nuremberg trials, which is eventually what uh, happens. They also talk about the occupation of Germany. So it's very clear Germany is going to have to be occupied. So they originally were supposed to be three zones of influence. And the, Fre the uh, French want a zone. De Gaulle is not, who's the leader of the Free French, who's been in exile. He wants to, he had wanted to be included in the conference and was not. Yeah, you notice um, it's big three and not big three plus or big three and also De Gaulle. No, yeah, De Gaulle's going to have some um, feelings about that too for a while. Um, but he, they, De Gaulle thinks that as one of the allied parties, the French should be included in the occupation of Germany. And Stalin's like, yeah but you were taken over and a lot of you collaborated with the Nazis, so maybe not. <laughs> and so basically the agreement that he kind of makes, Stalin strikes with the Americans and the British, is that the French can have a zone, but it comes out of your end, guys. And so the Americans and the British each shave a little bit off of their zone of occupation and give that to the French. Um, and that's basically the French, American, and English, or uh, British zones become West Germany 
and the Soviet zone becomes East Germany. And then they similarly divide up the city of Berlin itself, which is deep in Soviet territory. Uh, and so that's Stalin's basically like, yeah, okay, you guys can give the French part of your territory, but I'm not giving up any of mine. <laughs> Um, Poland is the uh, one of the big sticking points. Stalin wants to confirm Poland's borders. Um, he wants to confirm also the existing pro-Soviet provisional government. So obviously Poland being situated where it is, the, they had been liberated from the Nazis by the Soviets. And the Soviets had been sitting in um, Poland for months, uh, throughout most of the winter, they had been in the process of liberating uh, throughout Poland. They are actually going to watch as the Polish try to overthrow the Warsaw Uprising a few months prior. The Soviets are basically sitting across the river and sit on their hands while the Soviet partisans try to overthrow the Nazis. And the Soviets basically figure, well, either the Nazis will win and eliminate the, the Polish revolutionaries, or the Poles will win and eliminate the Nazis. Either way, it's good for us. We're just going to stay out of it. Uh, and so Stalin has, in the absence, and the Warsaw Uprising is a whole thing, and it gets brutally crushed by the Nazis. And so in the absence of like Polish leadership, the Soviets are going to install a pro-communist, pro-Soviet, basically a puppet government. Uh, it is, um, it's called the Lublin government. It's a town in Poland. And Stalin wants to confirm this which FDR reluctantly does do, but he also is uh, going to force Stalin to commit to free and fair elections in Poland. Spoiler alert. <laughs> they don't happen. Um, Stalin will commit to joining the United Nations. The Soviet Union will join the United Nations. He has been assured in a sort of secret protocol as part of this agreement that he will get the Soviet Union rather will get a veto in the Security Council and that is what assures him that it makes it worth doing for him to join that the main powers will get a um, a veto the main powers being USSR the USA the UK France and then Roosevelt will push for China to get a veto Roosevelt seeing the Chinese star on the rise they weren't communist yet uh, and seeing that China's going to become, by sheer numbers alone, a power player in the next generation or two. Uh, he wants China to have a veto. Uh, and so um, that's going to be the five vetoes on the Security Council. And this had been to circle back to sort of some of these conversations in late 19. Um, 44 and uh, sort of this prep on the United Nations was whether or not to let the Soviet Union have the veto power. And this is something that many of the Americans sort of crafting this are very hesitant about. And this is a chip that FDR plays here at Yalta. Um, this is really, he knows that this is going to probably be what he has to do to get Stalin ultimately to come on board with the United Nations. Um, but there were many Americans in the early stages of crafting this that really wanted to withhold the veto power. Yes. And they had good reasons, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Some yeah. good reasons. <laughs> Stalin also wants to give, so the Soviet Union is, there are 16, 15 um, uh, socialist republics inside the Soviet Union. Russia is the biggest of them, but Ukraine, Estonia, Latvia, the um, Central Asian ones, there's 15 of them in total. He wants each one of them to get a separate UN membership rather than as a part of the 
continuum of the Soviet Union. And this is going to be flatly denied. Churchill's like, no way, not having it. No, you're one country, like, tough luck. <laughs> um, he also is going to commit to joining the Pacific War, which is the thing this FDR really wants. He says, give me three months after Victory in Europe Day, and I need to, we need to, we need a break. <laughs> We need a minute. Uh, and then he also, like, has to literally move troops across, like, sure. continents, which is not, you know, the easiest thing. Um, and so he does. Actually, Stalin is as good as his word. VE Day is on Mar- May 8th, and on August 8th, he invades, sweeps into North Korea, uh, and declares war on Japan. In between, as it happens, the two atomic bomb droppings. So it's atomic bomb one, Soviets invade. Uh, and then atomic bomb number two, and then the Japanese suit for peace a couple days later. Um, and so he actually does hold up his end of the bargain. FDR is not, spoiler alert, alive to see it, but it is, uh, that is what happens. And the aftermath of this, so Churchill comes home, and Churchill's one of those people who gets like almost everything wrong, and this is one of the things that he gets really wrong. He comes home from this conference and his two big emotions are, number one, he's sad about his buddy because he can clearly tell that Franklin Roosevelt is very ill. Yeah. The other thing he says is that he believes that he Stalin will be as good as his word in terms of elections in Poland. And he gives this speech, which like somehow like has managed to like, He's some his biographers have managed to like shove it into the background, but basically he says, "Oh, I know we can't really trust Stalin, but I think we can trust him here." And it's like, really, bud? Hmm, okay. And spoiler alert: you can't trust Stalin. You cannot. It is. It does not work out. Um, well, and this is inevitably the imbalance of, you know, when you have Churchill and Roosevelt who get to their position through the due power of election, and then you have a dictator. At the end of the day, a dictator is almost never going to want to throw out the system that has gotten them where they are and head for free elections. No, and it's almost immediately clear that Stalin had no intention of allowing the Poles a say. And the Poles are feel really, because there's a free Polish government in, in exile, and they feel really betrayed by their allies. Because the it turns out the British went to war originally over Poland. And so now, here we are five years later, and... The British are no more interested in helping Poland, no more able to help Poland than they had been at the beginning. And so it's this very, like, the Poles feel very betrayed by this. Um, A lot of Polish soldiers refuse to return to Poland because they're worried about Soviet repression. Um, There's a lot of trials. There's a lot of resettlement. Um, People are going to, there's a mass immigration out of Poland by people who want um, some sort of democracy. Um, He, there is not free elections and that's going to be clear even before roosevelt dies in april like this is clear within weeks that there's not going to be elections stalin's going to drag his feet uh, on this allowing the already pro-soviet government to further establish itself in poland and so by the time they get around to elections in 1949 which is four years later there's really no doubt who it's who's going to win they're not free they're not fair they're not democratic and so it is i've always thought one of the biggest ironies of this sort of whole war in a way that like the british and french get involved to help secure poland and then can't even at the end of the war like and just you have to feel for the polish people who are literally i mean they're the first 
to be invaded and face the Nazis. They, they really take a brunt of this. And then they just get put, I think, in, a, in this terrible position. They're, they're pawns. And it, it's the trusting um, Stalin. And you, you mentioned Churchill, but Roosevelt also very much comes home and he tells Congress, you know, we are on the road to a world of peace. We are confident in Poland. And it's like pretty clear pretty quickly that this is not really going to go the way that he thinks. But he also, like Churchill, really comes home and gives the song and dance that we can trust Stalin when it comes to Poland. Yeah, it is not a great idea. It's not a good look. Um, so yeah, the po- they're going to, mean, almost a month later, they start arresting Polish political op- uh, leaders. And that's who's left. Like the Nazis had done a pretty decent job of executing a lot of Polish leaders when they invaded. And so now the Poles are like double victims. They're going to become victims of the Nazis and then victims of the Soviets. And so it really is just this really, Poland just gets the rough end of a lot of uh, a lot of sticks uh, being sort of situated where they are geography is not kind to them uh, and in reality like there wasn't a whole lot the anglo-americans could have done to help poland unless they're going to go for a full-scale invasion and that obviously wasn't about to happen so but it really is just such a um uh a marriage of or a, of what our ideals are versus what we can practically do. And Stalin's on the ground. He's got people there. And that's kind of just how that goes. And it presages the whole like iron curtain that kind of falls in the few years after the war. And as you said, sort of spoiler, Roosevelt doesn't live to see a lot of that, but he does live long enough to know that his optimism surrounding Stalin is probably ill-founded because his ambassador to the Soviet Union, Avril Harriman, is really going to almost immediately in early March tell him there's there's no getting around it. Stalin's vision for post-war globe is at an odds with what our vision for what this global community is going to be. Harriman says essentially that they are an establishment of totalitarianism. They're going to end personal liberty and democracy as we know it. And Roosevelt has to actually essentially write back and say, you're absolutely right. Um, and doesn't quite say I was wrong, but very much sort of admits that Harriman's assessment of this situation on the ground is that Stalin is going to do what he wants to do, regardless of whether the Americans support it. And Avril Harriman is a, he's a fa- deeply fascinating man. This too. is, he's a podcast topic in and of himself. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've actually talked about his sister before when we talked about Francis Perkins. Uh, but Avril Harriman, he's one of the few people that Roosevelt really trusts. Like, he's a Roosevelt insider. Um, he and Roosevelt have been buds for years. He's, like, one of the few people that Roosevelt, like, listens to. Uh, and that's why he's actually ambassador to Moscow, yeah. because Roosevelt trusts him. And he is, he's at Yalta, I, we should mention. He's there, as are several other members of the diplomatic corps. And he really was the, was sort of, pushing for a harder line on the Soviet Union period because as ambassador, he had seen the reality of this. And of course, his objectives and goals are not always the same as when you are the president and you're trying to get what you need to a particularly, I think, assistance on a Pacific front as it might be needed for a land invasion. Um, but he really was, you know, at Yalta kind of saying like, hey guys, you know, Stalin might be saying what you want to hear, but that doesn't mean we have any real mechanism to hold him to it. Right, exactly. Um, FDR is 
literally two months after the conference ends, FDR is dead. Um, April, and in fact, when they leave, Churchill will go back to London and basically lament how ill he looks and says that I did not anticipate that he would be, that he was as sick as he looks. It's the last time they will ever meet, uh, Roosevelt and Churchill. And um, uh, FDR is dead of a cerebral hemorrhage literally two months later. And all of a sudden, there's a new guy at the helm, a uh, new untried, untested. Harry Truman is the third of Roosevelt's three vice presidents. And um, in some ways, it's such a great accident of history that turns out to kind of work out well, really well. But like no one knew that at the time. And so suddenly after like 12 years of Roosevelt and in the midst of two wars, we've got this untried brand new guy at the helm of everything. And um, it's not just that he's brand new. He, this is a guy who has been let in into nothing. He has been told nothing. What he knows about Yalta, he's essentially reading in the papers and hearing second and third hand through AIDS. He's not not in the inner circle. He has no real relationship with these players up to this point, right? Truman has not really had a relationship. And so and he has no clue about the atomic bomb or any of the Manhattan Project. And so um, not only is he untested, but he's he's really been set up to fail in many ways. And it's a miracle that he doesn't fail. And it's a miracle he does as well as he does. It really, really is. Um, VE Day happens on May 8th, which is Becca and Harry Truman's birthday. Yay. Um, so the war is over just a few months later. And it's really sort of remarkable. I mean, it's about three months after Yalta. And they, that's about what they thought, right? A couple more months of this, they're on there. It's the dying gasps of, yes. of Germany's fight. And then Churchill is immediately replaced. So the Potsdam Conference is the third meeting of the big three. It happens the end of July of 1945. And within four months, both two of the leaders of these three major powers have been replaced. FDR has died and given way to Harry Truman. And Churchill has been voted out of the premiership or the um, prime ministership and is uh, replaced by Clement Attlee, uh, who's going to go to Potsdam. And so all of a sudden, Stalin's dealing with two new dudes. And so Potsdam is deeply interesting because um, Truman finds out in the midst of the conference that the atomic bomb has worked, like he's been briefed about it by this time, and he's find out that it's working. He can't tell anybody, but he knows that it, he's got that in his hip pocket. But now Stalin is thinking that he can lord it over to sort of untested um, leaders. And so it's a really interesting change in the dynamic for Potsdam. Uh, we can talk in depth about Potsdam at some other point, but um, that's sort of where this kind of ends. The war in Europe is basically over by this time, uh, the time of Yalta, and it literally ends three months after they go home. Uh, and so that is Yalta. My big takeaway from Yalta is that they were wrong to just to trust Stalin and that FDR does not get enough, um, we don't pile on enough on him for trusting Stalin and for relying on his own charm to sort of see this through, I think. Yeah, there's sort of, it's sort of interesting because I think depending on sort of who you, who you read or what, what you look at, there's sort of either the sense that like, you know, FDR went into Yalta and did the best he could, or there's the sense that he sort of like, made a bunch of mistakes. And I think it's much more complex than that, right? He makes a lot of calculations, some of which 
through no fault of his own, do not work out, some of which are naive and foolish, and some of which at the end of the day, we were talking about him being sort of this consummate politician, that he does exactly what most Americans would have wanted the American president to do. And I think that's especially true in consideration of where we think we are in terms of the fight against Japan in February. Because until that test works, until that nuclear test works, we cannot guarantee that we are not going to have to put Americans on the ground in Japan. And that is driving Truman in a, not Truman, that is driving FDR in a very real way. Yes, that's definitely, he doesn't know that this is going to work. He doesn't know when it's going to work. Um, and, and he can't make decisions hoping it does. He has to make right. decisions with the reality of that. And then if he's lucky and he right. gets if to be a little lucky. Right, right. And it's just so, in, it, what the other thing about this is interesting to me is that of the three, Churchill was the oldest of all of them and lives the longest of all three. Oh, that's right. Century. Yeah, he lives into the 60s, like amazingly uh, enough. But yeah, it's really fascinating to me that um, Yalta is just this great moment and you have to forget that they don't know that Roosevelt's not going to live. And you'll see the pictures when we put them up. There's a lot of, this is the picture that they use for him, the sculpture of him at his memorial in Washington is actually comes from the Yalta Conference. So he looks drawn, he looks tired. And one of the things that I always say to people when I take them to this memorial is, you know, you've seen, and we all seen pictures of modern presidents and how much they age in eight years. Roosevelt had four more, plus a Great Depression and a World War. And so it's really like, amazingly that he held up kind of as well as he did health-wise with all of this stress and you can just see how like his whole face is sunk in and he just looks so stressed out at Yalta it's really um really remarkable that no one like sat him down and was like we need to have like a real come to Jesus about your health here dude like things aren't good I do think, too, there are some good flexes here, though, for the U.S. I think it really does FDR, and this is true not just of Yalta, but of additional meetings and conferences that, you know, we are emerging, right, as a world power. We're emerging as the power that's going to define the terms of the conversation. Um, even as Truman sets it a Potsdam, he's getting to do it sort of on the shoulders of where we've sort of brought ourselves as a country, this does really help lead us up to and legitimize the establishment of the United Nations, which is really key, getting the Soviet Union to buy into the concept of the UN, however you feel about the United Nations as we move into the 21st century, but to really at this moment say, we have to take global the, the quest for global peace and global community seriously. We have to have a mechanism that isn't simply waging war. And there, there is, I think, a, an important sort of tie from Yalta to that um, for, for me, from my perspective. I agree, definitely. Yeah. So that's Yalta. Yay. Um, and uh, we're excited to be back, friends. We got a good late summer and fall for you. We'll be back in two weeks with more stuff and we're going to go out west and it's going to be really great. So thank you guys for coming along with us. Thank you as and always. You can email us. Um, you can tour guide tell all at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, please, please, please send us your pod requests as we're heading into fall and winter. We want to hear 
what you want to hear. And if you're interested in joining us on a tour, dcbyfoot.com. If you like us on the pod, you'll love us in person. We are better in person. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Thank you all.